Hello, I'm Aaron Whiteman. And I'm Adam Wilde. We're your hosts and co-directors of the Cornell Maple Program. You're listening to Sweet Talk, all things maple. In today's episode, we have the real privilege of speaking with Steve Child. Steve was the New York State Maple Specialist for many years. He's my former colleague, now retired, but he's been really a pivotal character in bringing about a lot of the innovations that have made the maple industry what it is today. Morning. Welcome, Steve. So, Steve, you've been in the maple world for a long time. But how did you get involved with Maple Research and Extension? Uh, in 1986, I joined the Cooperative Extension in Wyoming County, and part of my responsibilities there was maple. And prior to that, I had been 10 years a field person for Hillcrest Homestead in Allegheny County, where I was responsible for 1,200 taps on tubing and 1,200 buckets on uh, in the different woods. And during those 10 years, I had a lot of opportunity to observe issues we had with tubing and how things worked and how we pretty much guessed at everything we did. And the other thing I got to observe a lot was just what happens with varieties of weather, when sap would run, when it wouldn't run, and try to figure out why that was happening. So I guess there was a little bit of research in my mind going on uh, in those 10 years I was in the field. And then, like I say, in Wyoming County, we did uh, a maple school and a maple fall tubing workshop most of those 18 years I I was in that position. So little bits of research here and there during those years, but nothing nothing you know, particularly serious. But that's where I kind of got the background experience that helped with the research and with the extension. It sounds like that bucket experience was pretty valuable. Uh, I found the bucket experience very valuable because you could see what happened when you put a lot of buckets on a tree or less buckets on a tree. Uh, you could see how much difference it made with your pointed towards the sun, away from the sun. There was a lot that we discovered about how to set up a system with the buckets so that you could gather it efficiently rather than just taking so much time to get the volume out of the woods. So yeah, that was a real education time there for 10 years. Right. So then you carried that forward with the, your next work in Maple Extension? Yeah, the maple producers in Wyoming County were a very positive, very aggressive group of producers, and that's where we did a school and a workshop each year. Plus, I did a newsletter that included maple that went out uh, four times a year, and they they were just very encouraging. They were very excited to have someone coming into the extension uh, agent position that had some maple experience. So we worked together real real well all that time I was in Wyoming County. Right. So how did you move from that position into the campus-based maple specialist position? Well, the maple producers had uh, been lobbying the president of the Ag College to add a maple position at the university. There was a maple position at E-Line, but that's really a long ways from Western New York. And it was primarily Western New York who was pushing the university to add the position. And they put the college president at the time did respond by uh, putting up three years of funding for that position. And the job was, description was out. And I, in Wyoming County, was responsible for probably 45 different crops. I was getting older. I said, one crop looks really good. And so I applied. And I guess I had the most record for working with Maple of any of the applicants. And I ended up with that job, which was truly an exciting change for me. 
I told them when they interviewed me that if they hired me, that all what they were getting was an old extension war horse who lived through a lot of battles and <laughs> right. kind of knew how to deal with people. So I, I got chosen for the job, and it was very different back then, Aaron. I was, it was the Lone Ranger, Maple person right. for the state, and I sat there in the office on campus where there was really oh, very little camaraderie or where you would have anyone else to bounce your ideas off of and stuff. So when we had the chance to actually take over the production and the research in a whole different way at the r I jumped at that chance. And that's, that's where you came in, and now a very nice crew now exists there for doing the maple research. Right, and for those who don't know, the Arnot is the Arnot Teaching and Research Forest, which is Cornell's main research woods, and it's over 4,000 acres in size. And we have a considerably sized sugar bush there that, Steve, when you took over, was about 2,500 taps. Is that right? Right. And so now we've grown that to, I think, over 7,600 taps and made a lot of changes. And, and you had some su- specific goals in your reasoning for upsizing that sugar bush, right, Steve? Yeah, I thought we needed to move into more of a truly commercial size operation. And I wanted to make the whole forest a research center so that every tap we have in that wood someplace, there's something for us to observe. And then as we observe different things, then of course we push it over into the more replicated research. So uh, I wanted a bigger window that I could watch. Right. And we've increased the size of that window by about 400%, I think, in the past four years. Yeah. And I thought I think it's paid off. I think we get to see a lot of things up close, even though, as you know, the maple season goes very fast and there's a lot to do. Right. You just have to stay awake longer. <laughs> <laughs> so you've seen that progression from working with buckets in the early 80s and tubing during that time, all the way up through this more modern system we've established. And you must have seen a lot of changes over that time. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the past 10 years? Yeah, there's been a lot of changes all the way up through that time. In the last 10 years, I would have to say that there's been uh, real growth in the number of taps that operations have and how many operations there are out there. I've seen a significant increase in the interest of value-added products and sort of diversifying the maple market. And of course, one of those things that I was real close to was the small producers adopting uh, reverse osmosis. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reverse osmosis was primarily for the big producers initially, and now even people with 10 taps in the backyard want to use that technology. So those those have all been pretty good-sized changes. Right. So when the Western New York maple producers lobbied to form your position, were those some of the types of goals they had in mind? They wanted an expert who could innovate and share knowledge with maple producers to increase production? Or do you know exactly what they had in mind? Well, they wanted to keep the E-line because it represented North Country syrup production. And and it's uh, kind of unique and so on. in many ways, kind of different than what we get across the southern tier, Catskills, western New York. So they thought they, they should have a second research center in New York because of the diversity of forests. And they wanted to have someone who could dedicate more time to research and extension than just the person who was running the E-line. Right. So one of the lines of research that you prioritized was research on vacuum systems and optimizing the performance of tubing. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with looking at that and how you ended up developing the tubing notebook? Uh, I guess the thing that underlies the development of my interest in figuring out the vacuum and tubing issue 
was that we did a tubing workshop every fall in Wyoming County. And over those uh, almost 20 years of doing that, I had a chance to watch the systems go from where you had 50 or 60 taps on a lateral line to where they were suggesting six, five or six taps on a lateral line. And yet, in spite of all those recommendations, there was no source of information that described how tubing systems could or should be set up. No engineering at all that I was aware of. And I just said, this this really needs to change this simply guessing at how we're going to do this is really just seems like it's kind of an archaic approach. And so one of my goals coming into the job was we're going to get some real information as best we can on tubing and vacuum. Did you see that lack of information showing up in performance in the woods where people getting suboptimal vacuum levels at their trees? People just didn't know what to do. You'd go out and look at neighbors' operations, and if they thought they were working well, then, then they'd try to copy that. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the downright reality of all of it is and you, is that uh, if you go out and test what you get for vacuum on the ends of your lines during a reasonably good run, and it's what you want it to be, then you have a system that's okay. That, that's a system that you don't need to necessarily uh, renovate or do anything to. But when you're building a new system, how do you know that you're going to end up with that? That's that's where the information was just not there. And as tubing systems were getting bigger and bigger, of course, those questions were arising more and more. And I just wanted to have answers to some of those questions if I was going to be the New York State Metro Specialist. Right. And there are big implications for production because that's a difference between increasing production 100% or just getting a kind of a standard yield, right? If, if they're getting that's right. If they're getting five inches of vacuum at their tree instead of 20 or 26, that's a pretty huge difference in yield, right? Yeah, and we could see that like Vermont was sort of leading the way in how to design systems. There were private organizations that seemed to think that they knew really how to do it all. Mm-hmm. And of course, now we look back at what some of those look like now, and we're like, whoa, those were severely undersized. Right. The uh, Farm Viability Institute was willing to put money up for research on tubing and vacuum. And so that's where the, the notebooks actually came out of. We got the funding that gave me the time to actually focus on it. It took me two years of banging my head on the wall to say, how in the world can I present this? Because everything you'd come across was severely complicated mm-hmm. as far as how you size for line loss, how do you size for, for liquid in the line, uh, what size of vacuum pump do you need? So that's the kind of information that we did our best to find the best information out there. And as I've mentioned to you many times, every time you change something in a vacuum system, everything changes. So like I was saying, no matter what you do and how well you think you did it, go out and test those lines under the conditions of a good run, let you know how well you did or if you need to make changes. Right. Yeah, so it, there was all those complex factors that go into designing and sizing your, your system, but you and your vacuum and tubing notebook boiled it down to just a few main factors. Would you say there are maybe four main considerations to take in, in mind when you design a, a system? Uh, the, the main parts in designing a system are distance, that you're moving this leakage air, uh, the distance you've got to move the sap, the slope at which you're going to move that sap, the vacuum pump's capacity and how that capacity changes as you try to increase vacuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just made it really complicated, didn't I? <laughs> well, it's you're still within the, the four-factor parameters okay. that I said. 
what the main thing that I think the vacuum tubing notebook does, if you want to be educated on a lot of those factors, it, it covers those in detail. But the charts that are in there, uh, which we gained from several different sources, one is from an industry source, which we haven't even been able to identify. The other is New York State Building Code for dentists' offices and hospitals, which provided an amazing amount of, of insight into how those things work. And then we did our own tests on multiple lines of tubing, both lateral lines and main lines. And when we found that those three sources pretty well agree, then we were pretty confident that we could put a lot of that into the notebook. And we also rearranged how those were set up so that now you can look at that and see what happens when you change the vacuum level on the same size of line, what happens out through that system. Right. And it's pretty easy to look at that chart and say, oh, if I have lines that are only moving, say, two or three or four CFM, then... Uh, I don't have a big line loss. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't see that on the charts they were before. Right. And I think that's that's one of the lessons that I've taken away from the vacuum and tubing notebook is the relationship between the different charts. So if I when I first dove in and thought, well, I need to put in some lines and started looking for some quick answers, like can I skip to the charts in the back and figure out what I need? I really couldn't do that. I needed to read the notebook and understand the principles at play for each of those different factors. And there's a lot of detail there. So I'm wondering what you would say maybe to someone that's new to setting up a tubing system and might be inclined like I was to initially look for a shortcut. Is there something you would say to them to encourage them to read the notebook and not really understand the principles involved? I guarantee it can put you to sleep if you had sleep problems. <laughs> right. I, uh... <laughs> I, I agree with that. <laughs> I uh, do think that if you jump to the charts without reading about how to actually read the charts, because the chart, you have to go to the point on the chart where your system is, not start at the top of the chart. Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand that, you'll get you'll get wrong answers from the charts. And the, and the reading does describe that. But to me, I don't like being told this is what you do. I like understanding how things work, and then I can make decisions about what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So the notebook is set up for people who want to know how vacuum and, and tubing systems uh, work, and then you make your own decisions about what you want to do. Don't. Uh, I just hate the idea of someone says, oh, you have to put this size of line and then this size of line, and you have to have this level of vacuum. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, but what if my system's not like the one you're talking about? Right. And you, you said something interesting there, Steve. You said that you like to understand why things happen instead of being told. And you have reflected that in your extension work as well. And that's sometimes a hard thing to do because people come to you and they want an answer, right? Oh, one of the things about being in extension, and I, I'm sure you follow this as well, Aaron, and that is people make maple syrup for a variety of reasons, and they have their own things that they like and they dislike. Mm -hmm. And my goal as an extension person was always to provide them with information that gives them options so that they can fit it to what it is they actually want to do. Some people don't care about maximum yield. Some people don't care that uh, vacuum is perfect everywhere. And that's that's fine. That's, that's your business. Mm -hmm. But I want to provide them with options that they can look into my teaching and say, I, I don't want to do it that way, but in knowledge, make a decision to do it a different way. Mm -hmm. And what I don't want to get into as an extension person is I'm going to develop the perfect system and you have to all follow it or you're stupid. Right. That just, that's a roadmap to disaster. 
for an extensive person, it seems to me. People need options. They don't need to be told exactly what to do. Right. And this time of year, that takes the form of a lot of people inquiring whether they should tap their trees now or not. I've already started getting those emails. Is it time to tap my sugar bush? So what approach would you have for something like that? How long do you want your maple season to be? (laughs) How does that fit with your lifestyle? Mm -hmm. See, I've changed that. When When I was at the Arnott, I always wanted to maximize. Now I'm getting ready to set up my own little maple tubing system. I'm like, how can I set this up so I only have to do this for like three weeks? <laughs> right, exactly. So so you made the vacuum and tubing notebook and you did a lot of background research to give people the information they needed. And you took a similar approach to answering some questions about confections, right? Yeah, there again, Farm Viability and Sarah both were willing to fund research into that area. So they opened the door wide open for me. and. There again, I have to go back to my experience in Wyoming County Extension. There, I had worked with the potato growers on a grant for uh, measuring sugars in stored potatoes so that we can store them properly. And in that case, we were measuring glucose and sucrose, and only in very much smaller amounts had to change before our chips would go off color. So when I'm over looking at the equipment and the literature available for maple, they're talking about doing clinitablet tests where you have to make six dilutions of, of uh, syrup and then figure out at which one did it turn from blue to green. And uh, I just said, this is archaic. We have equipment that can do this stuff quick and easy. So uh, one of the first things I wanted to try was to see if my machinery that I used for the potatoes would work for maple. And I had a couple of maple producers who were willing to cooperate. Zumfer Maple and Merley Maple were there in my district, and they were willing to cooperate by providing samples and then giving me feedback on what kind of products I made. And the next step was nobody wants to buy this machine for a maple operation, a $15,000 machine that would read these sugar readings. But we said, well, diabetic meters do the same thing. So we worked with Food Venture Center to test and see if we could understand the inverse sugar levels and how they resulted in products using a diabetic meter. And it turns out that worked really well and really easy. We just had to develop the information so that you could understand what it meant. And so that's that was the basis of the confection notebook. So at that point, where a lot of people had the, the conventional wisdom of looking at the color of the syrup, right, and deciding whether or not it was suitable for confections based on whether it was amber or golden, but was there a general understanding that there were different sugars involved? Um, this term invert sugar, which is an unfortunate one, mm-hmm. because it has to do with the sugars that invert polarized light, which I don't know about you. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so in any case, the presence of glucose and fructose in the maple syrup affects how, how it crystallizes. And most of the time, the lighter the color of the syrup, the lower those sugars are, the more likely it is to granulate the way you want. But when you get into actually looking at all the samples, we ran, we ran hundreds and hundreds of samples and found that about 80% of the time, that's true. Mm-hmm. And then there is the other 20% where you think everything should be fine, but it fails. And that's the part that the diabetic meter solves for people. Right, and that's a that represents a pretty big failure rate. If 20% of yeah. your batches fail, that's a pretty big loss. Yeah, every five times you do it, you have a failure. That means you got to clean up a failed mess and swear at your 
spouse and all those things that go into <laughs> family uh, experiences of working with value-added. Mm-hmm. So some producers who had worked with it for a long time were pretty good at picking their syrups. They knew they had to pick the cold season syrups uh, to do that. How you boiled and how good your operation was at not darkening the syrup as it cooked fit into that. People who added oxygen in the finishing pan could make lighter syrups that had high invert sugars, and that would mess up people figuring out what was what. Right. So the diabetic meter was pretty handy. And then back to uh, some of your school physics and so on, this uh, crystal forming uh, has totally to do with the mix of sugars and the temperatures. And a lot of a lot of research needed to be done there. We were making a lot of grainy products. So trying to figure out the right temperatures to do things along with the right syrup to do things is where the notebook really comes in. Right. And it seems like that's an aha moment for a lot of people when they first learn about the, the background crystallization science and they start understanding what makes a crystal form at a certain temperature, at a certain size, and how that translates into the quality of the product. That seems like a huge eye-opener for a lot of maple producers when they put all those pieces together. You know, there again, it was made to give people options. Some people say they like a little grain in their, in their candy or in their cream, and other people want that to be totally smooth. So. Hopefully we put together the information system that people can make those judgment calls. Right. And I know that when I first started working with you, I I had made confections at my, my family maple business, but I had never really put all those things together to under, to think about crystallization science and all that. And now when I'm teaching that to other people, it, it, it feels like some really exciting knowledge to transfer. It's, it's really neat to be able to control the process. And putting the notebook together was just a piece of it. We actually went on the road, did dozens and dozens of confection workshops over a, a six-year period there. And we still continue to do those, just not in the same kind of numbers. Mm-hmm. And the aha moments come when people watch you do it right there in front of them and you do it one way for part of the sample and another way for the other part of the sample and then they get to eat those products. And that that's where I saw the biggest aha moments, as you call them. Mm-hmm. That wow, that is an amazing difference. And when you watch people make like candy using the cooled down syrup and you say, Oh, that looks like such a mess. No one would ever want to do that. And then you taste the candy and, and people say, Oh yeah, we want to do that. <laughs> right. Probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast are familiar with your your road shows and your demonstrations. I know a lot of people still contact me, even though you're retired, and and ask about that and want want to see that. Yeah, I'll probably get on the road here after COVID and put on a lot of demonstrations where I unintentionally fail in front of the crowd, and maybe that will be good information for them too. I've never found it a problem to have a failure because usually you understand the reason for it and. People learn more by watching uh, a known reason failure than they do by watching you do it perfect and then they and then they fail. Right, and it, and it gives them an insight into that whole troubleshooting process where you then go back to the notebook or to the ideas contained in the notebook and think about where the failure point could possibly be and right. better understand your process. The very first reason for a failure to happen is you're doing it in front of people. <laughs> right. <laughs> I experienced that with you a few times, Steve. Yeah. So uh, just switching gears a little bit, there are a lot of people looking at getting into the maple syrup industry now, a lot of beginners. What are some things you might say to someone who's considering getting into the maple products industry but haven't quite pulled the trigger yet? Um, My first advice is get some experience. There are maple producers who will let you come work with them, just buy some syrup from somebody and try it in a small scale. 
and get as much education as you can. There was a couple. They now have the sweet trees just uh, outside of Ithaca there. And I would go to the fair and they would be there working. And I would say, so where's your maple operation? And they're like, oh, we don't have one yet. I said, so well, what is it you're doing here? I said, we're, we're just here getting experience before we actually get into it. And that attitude isn't something I see an awful lot, but it really made a huge difference for them. Right. Uh, go, go spend a day at the fair. Go work with a maple producer. Do stuff on a small scale before you dive in with too much money and gain that experience and education. Right. A lot of maple producers are very open to letting folks come and help gather sap and run the evaporator, right? Yeah, or even help uh, make value-added products. Mm -hmm. Maple is a, maybe, I don't know, I haven't been involved with a lot of other agricultural sectors, but it seems like maple is a little bit unique in that aspect and that maple producers are very eager to share their knowledge with other people. Uh, that seemed to be the case with the, the family-type operations. Uh, we've gone over in a few cases to where the operations are uh, more more commercialized or more like a acting like a corporation, and I've found that they aren't necessarily quite as quite as cooperative in spreading their information around. Mm -hmm. The big hundred thousand tap operations probably have uh, bigger concerns with keeping their system up and running than they do with uh, making sure they keep their neighbors happy all the time. <laughs> that seems a little bit that way, but that's not universal either. Right. Kind of on that topic, can you think of some common pitfalls that maple producers fall into? Is there something that a lot of sugar makers fail to focus on? Well, one of the concerns I hear a fair amount in the meetings and so on is make sure you taste your syrups and that you're not putting any inferior product out for retail sales. So the grading side of things, and you know as well as anybody, Aaron, grading is a difficult thing. The equipment doesn't give you the same answers. Flavor is very much a personal perspective. But it's, it's something that it's, seems to raise its head every once in a while, that things aren't being labeled correctly or things aren't to the correct densities, things aren't judged to the right color. So that would be something that we've tried to work on, but it, it has, it's a little bit difficult to work with, and it's something that can fall through the cracks. Right. The quality pitfall is definitely something I have seen and we've experienced in doing taste tests and judging at fairs and things like that. And it, it is a bit surprising sometimes, right? Yes. And some people simply don't have good uh, tasting abilities. Mm -hmm. uh, when we did the, some of the grading workshops, we would put out 15 samples of syrup and everybody had to taste them all. And out of those 15, two were known off-flavored syrups. The other 13 were relatively good flavored, but just were different, different colors and different aspects to them. And there would be people who would go right down the line, oh, that tastes good, that tastes good, that tastes good. Even the bad syrups to them tasted good. <laughs> I'm one of those people. That That's how my taste buds work. <laughs> and so sometimes you have to make sure there's a different taster in the system mm -hmm. if you're one of those people who just doesn't taste it. Right. And even even when you taste it when it comes off the evaporator, it's always good to taste it when you rebottle it, right? Yes. Things don't taste the same after they've cooled down sometimes. Right. And we actually had that experience at the Arnott recently. We, we picked up a, a new customer that wanted, wanted to buy some amber syrup specifically. And we didn't make a lot of amber syrup last year, but we had two barrels. So I thought we were in good shape. And I looked at our records and our records said that it was great tasting syrup that had a good maple flavor. And we opened up the first 40 gallon barrel, put it in the canner. And as it was heating up in the canner, uh, it smelled funny. It had a really strong caramel, chocolatey odor. 
It was an amber syrup made in March, and we tasted it, and it was buddy. And somehow that slipped past us when we were pulling it off the evaporator last year. But it was definitely yeah. a buddy syrup, and it was good that we identified that before we, we filled a whole bunch of jugs. Yeah, or make, make sure uh, your main taster isn't a smoker. <laughs> right. Yeah, that definitely impacts the taste buds a little bit. So I can ask you just a couple more questions if you have time, Steve. I know I've already taken almost an hour of your time. Do you have a, a few I, more minutes? I have all the time in the world, Aaron. Well, that's right. You're retired. <laughs> just sitting here this morning watching the fire burn. Usually I go out and cut ash trees every morning, trying to get our forest here, uh, get the dead trees down so it's not such a risk in there. Well, it sounds like you're starting a little sugaring operation. Yeah, I'm hoping I can get 100 taps here. I'm getting parts together to put my own little RO together. Oh, wow. Just for one season up there? It might be just for one season, but I don't have any great fear about recovering my funds. Mm-hmm. So is there one thing that might keep you up at night? Is there a, a concern for the industry that we should all be thinking about and planning for? Um, of course, not sleeping and worrying doesn't really change anything, so that probably wouldn't help all that much. Uh, if there's one thing, though, that concerns me, I guess it would be insect disease that might significantly damage the maple population. During my lifetime, we've seen the chestnut disappear and then the elms disappear and now the ash disappear and hemlocks may be disappearing and you're just like, uh, this has got to end or we could be in real trouble here. Mm -hmm. the, the second one, and this year here in Bliss, we've been threatened by this several times, but it never quite amounted to issue. And that is ice. Um, ice buildup on trees can really put your business out. And all of those, the insects, the disease, the ice, there's really nothing that you can do about that other than just be observant for the possible pestilence kind of things. But uh, mm -hmm. those are pretty strongly out of our control. I guess with a little bit of research, if we lost the maple, we might say, well, okay, we'll do the beach now or we'll do the basswoods now or something. <laughs> right. But that'd be a huge, that would just be a huge loss. Mm -hmm. I don't know of anything that, uh, other than that, you know, I'm, I'm not worried that the market's suddenly going to fall apart or that uh, all of a sudden they're going to find that maple causes cancer or anything crazy like that. Yeah, the, the markets seem incredibly strong. And maybe one potential threat, though, is that we're going to reach the saturation point with how much just pancake syrup we can sell. Well, we've, we've pursued some other remedies to that through the program, looking at value-added products and kind of expanding right. the offering of those. Do you think that's uh, something that will play a, a role in the future of, of maple syrup? I think it could play a huge role if we can uh, eventually get into some mass market items like soft drinks or coffees, teas, kombuchas, all, all those kind of mass market products could play a huge role, or even the sap. The uh, permeate water sap, those those can make a big difference to the incomes of producers. So it, it would be really interesting to me if if sap water became a a big financial issue to maple producers mm -hmm. rather than the syrup itself. Yeah. So when we have our new experimental kitchen online here in the next month or so, well, that's probably one of the things we'll we'll get right to work on. Maybe even a maple cola. We haven't even talked about a maple cola. Right. And part of that comes to the education of the public that here's what they do to make white sugar. Here's what we do to make maple sugar. Take your choice. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think a lot of people have any grasp of all the things that have to happen to make sugar white. Mm-hmm. And you're referring to the the refinement process, right? The refinement process, yeah. Or to make high fructose corn syrup. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's totally a chemical factory process. As, as a person who has great interest in chemistry, uh, just looking at the chemistry that goes into those things, there, there's essentially no chemistry involved in simply taking sap and turning it into, into syrup. And yet that's far from what you get with those other sweeteners. Yeah. So I'm sure that, that that's part of why maple is growing these days, right? Because people do know society at large is becoming more aware of where their food comes from. And, and maple is a really good example of that, where there are alternatives. Right. So what do you think some other future priorities might be for maple research? Uh, I, I think there's still lots to do with maple tubing systems, how to extend the season, how to properly tap trees, how to clean the systems, how you manage them, especially the, the tap hole sanitation side of things. The, there's, I think there's a lot of work that can be done there yet, even though we've, we've really hit some winners in, in the first half of that research, but I think there's still a lot to learn. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, you guys have those cans all out there working for us. Oh, yeah. Another round of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, like like the research we did last year with the uh, flatland system, how can we better get sap out of a flatland system than the ways we're doing it now? Mm-hmm. I found what we did uh, quite an eye opener where we just raised it up three feet every every time we needed to and how well that worked. Still lost some vacuum at the far end, but way easier to work with than a whole bunch of 10 foot ladders and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots to be done with value added development. We kind of already talked about that diversification of the maple market and what some possibilities are there. I think in the area of value added, there's still more work to be done on equipment improvements that allow the products to be made with greater efficiency and better quality. Uh, there again, uh, we made some pretty good strides there, but I, I don't think that's done yet either. Mm-hmm. We just touched on what va- vacuum cooling potential has. Oh, right. That's true. Yeah. And is there potential for vacuum cooling syrup coming off the boiler rather than letting it stack burn in cans? Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe that one's not the best one because you you do kind of get the sanitation aspect of putting it in the containers hot. Mm-hmm. But anyway, there's I think there's there's no end to maple research. Right. All you have to do is work in it for a while, and you say, "Man, we got more questions. We got answers by a long shot." Right. Every every line of research leads to more questions. Yes. The efficiency of RO membranes and temperatures and things like that. There's more unknown than known. I think in that whole realm. Hmm. People want to know what's the best membrane to buy. And you're like, well, I like this one because I have a hard time destroying it, which doesn't seem like a really good answer. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, and you raised some of those questions and they they were factors that we took in, into account when we built our new sugar house and we'll have those replicated ROs that we can use for that kind of research in the near future. The whole aspect of having side-by-side boilers that you can actually compare things in even comparing how you clean your pans versus not cleaning them quite as well, how big a difference does that make? Mm-hmm. I think I think there's endless research that having the update to the R-naught is going to provide. And so we are truly indebted to New York for the building part and indebted to the Appalachian Regional Commission, and, and they're providing funding for that special research equipment. 
before I go, can I ask, is there, now that you're retired, is there anything you miss about being the New York State Maple Specialist? Oh, I miss it totally. I miss the con- the regular contact with the maple producers. As you know, I never missed a chance to be with a group mm-hmm. of maple producers. Um, I miss my crew at Arnott. I really loved working with you guys. You were, your heart was in it, and we were able to get a lot of things done and had a good time doing it. So, mm-hmm. um, miss you. That's mutual. Well, Steve, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I hope some people listened. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure they will. You still have a lot of fans in the Maple world and a lot of people that uh, wonder how you're doing. So we, we all wish you well in your retirement and hopefully we'll, we'll see you around from time to time. During today's episode, we referenced several resources. The Vacuum and Tubing Notebook and the Maple Confections Notebook are both available for free download at cornellmaple.com. Thank you for joining us for Sweet Talk. All Things Maple with Aaron and Adam. Sweet Talk is produced by the Cornell Maple Program and is made possible from funding from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. All music was obtained from Blue Dot Sessions. For more information on all things maple, visit cornellmaple.com. Join us next time for more Maple Sweet Talk. Have a sweet day.